2: to Value listeners. This week, we will be discussing telehealth in the pursuit of value-based care. One of the silver linings of the pandemic has, in fact, been the expansion of telehealth services and virtual care delivery. The pandemic has also accelerated the healthcare industry's transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. The continued growth of telehealth is fueled by providing incentives for care delivery in the lowest-cost settings. Identify and interacting with highest risk individuals before disease onset, managing care teams and more efficient workflows, and taking advantage of digital remote technologies. Virtual care is an easy and cost-effective path to achieve value-based care, thereby improving health outcomes and patient satisfaction across a broader population of patients. Our guest
0: this week is Dr. Carrie Nelson, the Chief Medical Officer for Amwell, a leading digital care and telemedicine company. Dr. Nelson's a seasoned physician leader committed to healthcare transformation, and she's demonstrated success in innovation and change management, physician engagement, solution development and deployment, value-based care, managing and coaching other leaders, and delivering results. Before joining Amwell as a chief medical officer and president of their AMWEL medical group three months ago, she served as the senior VP and CMO for population health and health outcomes at Advocate Aurora Health. She's also served as the Chief Clinical Officer for Advocate Physician Partners, a benchmark organization known internationally for delivering value-based care and collaboration with about 5,000 employed and independent physician practices. With more than 28 years experience as a family medicine provider, Dr. Nelson is an innovative physician leader with a proven track record in quality improvement, patient
2: safety, and population health. Well, if you like this week's episode with Dr. Carrie Nelson, don't miss the opportunity to learn more about future ones by subscribing to the Race to Value weekly newsletter at racetovalue.org. And we appreciate your support as well by leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and sharing your perspective about the show. Let's now hear from Dr. Carrie Nelson as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Carrie, welcome to the Race to Value this week. It's so great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Eric.
2: Dr. Nelson, we couldn't be more excited to have you on the podcast this week. You and I initially connected while you were the Senior Vice President and CMO for Population Health and Health Outcomes at Advocate Aurora Health. And as a leader, of value-based care operations at this nonprofit integrated health system. You oversaw a risk-bearing network of 5,000 physician practices responsible for 1.3 million patients in the MSSP program, capitated MA, commercial risk contracts, and the BBCIA program. And Advocate Aurora Health was immensely successful in the MSSP. I mean, I remember you telling me you've had total savings of $414 million since joining the ACO program. The 28% improvement and total savings in that last performance year uh, came under your leadership. I know you were working with teams in Illinois and Wisconsin to help learn from each other and improve on how to improve and improve on how to provide best high quality coordinated care while managing costs. In June of this year, you left Advocate Aurora Health to join the executive team at Amwell. And as their new chief medical officer, you're focused on Empowering provider and payer organizations to achieve greater clinical, operational, and financial outcomes through Amwell's leading digital care delivery platform. As a primary care physician, I know you're passionate about improving patient care and believe technology has the power to improve patient outcomes and address the retention and burnout crisis. That's really facing the healthcare system. We especially see this in the traditional primary care model that still to this day is based on fee for service reimbursement predominantly. And, and it's just, it's failing to provide optimal outcomes. It's burning out clinicians. It's creating fragmentation and care delivery. So I wanted to ask you in this new, leadership role at Amwell, what do you recognize as the opportunity to improve care delivery at an even greater scale? And as a national leader in digital transformation and virtual care enablement, how is Amwell empowering digital care delivery across a full spectrum of environments to help healthcare organizations achieve their value-based care goals?
1: Well, you certainly summarized it up very well, Eric. It's a perfect storm to overstate the obvious. Yes, when I was with Advocate Aurora and in in all of my career, I have been focused on on driving healthcare transformation. And for the lion's share of that career, it's been in in population health, uh, quality, and patient safety. And so when I came to this work, it was really early in the the time of our eye-opening around the, the magnitude of the problem in which the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academies of Medicine, had created these two seminal uh, reports, one of which was Crossing the Quality Chasm and the other is uh, To air as Human. So in that, from the very beginning of the awakening to that information, I've been engaged in what I would term healthcare transformation. And so over these last more than 20 years, I have seen change, uh, but I have not seen the pace of change to be sufficient. And while you're right, I mean, Advocate Aurora has a very special uh, structure for driving value-based care across 5,000 docs just in Illinois, but then add another you know, couple thousand in Wisconsin and uh, really has committed to the value-based journey. It's a little bit of an exception. Unfortunately, there are many uh, healthcare systems and, and providers, you know, physicians and clinicians that are still very dependent on that fee-for-service model. We saw how the results of uh, the outcomes of our healthcare system uh, have fell far short of, of its potential. And you know, in many ways, I, I do blame the, the fee-for-service model. And I think that's why you're here uh, with this particular podcast called Race to Value, because uh, I think we've got to up the pace of change for sure. As we went through the pandemic, I think many of the consequences of that broken healthcare model really showed themselves in uh, the poor disease control that, that people came into the healthcare system with that made them more susceptible to high morbidity and mortality with the pandemic. And as I observed the pace of change in the context of the pandemic, I was wowed by our ability to really turn on a dime and get the work done that that needed to be done. That also meant putting a lot of things off to the side. So the capacity for healthcare systems to change is limited, um, and I think that that limitation is multifactorial. So it, the sources are multifactorial. Some of it is culture. Some of it is the failure to adapt, adopt technology to better inform and and complete the healthcare model in a way that, that can get us to those better outcomes. But it's also, it, it has to change. So our, our slow pace of change, I, I became impatient with it. I thought we could do something more transformative, following our learning from the pandemic, and yet I recognize that many cases we we went back to. A lot of health systems have have kind of gone back to more traditional ways of operating, which is a very slow uh, rate of change. And I recognize that health systems and payers, those that are functioning in the traditional healthcare system, need strong partners. And that's where I see Amwell organizations like Amwell coming in to really empower health systems to adopt these technologies. The burnout is so real. And it's within clinicians, uh, the workforce at the bedside, but it's also even within the administrative ranks of health systems. There is no shortage of things that need to change. And even, you know, trying to choose those priorities is mind-blowing in and of itself. And so uh, a lot of healthcare leaders don't have even sufficient time to think. And so working with an organization that has thought deeply about the potential of, of tele-driven care and how it can truly get better health outcomes at a lower cost uh, is what's needed. Health systems and payers can benefit from the the shared wisdom of the challenges within healthcare that come from our traditional healthcare partners and the solutions that we've created at at, at Amwell and other uh, tele-driven healthcare organizations uh, like Amwell.
0: Dr. Nelson, I'm inspired by your vision and your leadership in the value movement. You recognize the impact of virtual care, and you've, re- as you've referenced, and, and you know that telemedicine or telehealth is much more than a cheap digital knockoff of in person care. Instead, when we think about how using it a- appropriately, it can really be transformative in improving patient health and reducing overall costs of care. It also makes care more equitable and accessible to the 89% of adults who own a smartphone, including those in medically underserved communities. And during the pandemic, we saw this explosion of telehealth activity and that impacted consumer expectations for care delivery especially with patients who now saw that they could receive high quality care through a virtual visit but telemedicine usage in the united states has since plunged from its peak in april 2020 during that first surge of covid-19 cases where it accounted for 69% of doctor patient visits is now settled into more of a pre-pandemic norm where only 16% of adults over 50 and 22% of adults between 18 and 49 claim they'd like to continue receiving care virtually. It's also worth noting Amazon Care is shutting down their telehealth service, which many see or believe is due to their gross underestimation of how difficult and complex it is to disrupt the $4 trillion healthcare industry. Can you speak to whether virtual care demand is fallen off a cliff, so to speak, based on current utilization patterns and Amazon's recent announcement? Has consumer demand for telehealth subsided in lieu of more traditional face-to-face care? Or do you think we're simply in a transition phase in the new era of telehealth, where we will see continued and accelerated additions in the years to come?
1: What we did during the pandemic was largely moving brick-and-mortar care online. If that's all we ever achieve, we will have fallen far short of the potential for a truly technology-enabled uh, healthcare model. So, my friend Sean Griffin likened it to when the internet first was a new part of our culture, and everybody was interested in watching the dancing baby, and we could watch the dancing baby online. And if that's all we ever were able to achieve, and we said, "Well, that was fun," but you know, what else could it do? And, and if it, you know, then walked away from it. Then we would never have seen what what it's the life changing uh, force that the internet has been in our in our society. So I, I guess I'd liken it to that and say that. First off, uh, I don't think that Amazon getting out of uh, telemedicine is a sign of its of its demise. Amazon companies like Amazon are very good at learning fast. And they put up a, they, they made a major investment in Amazon care. And I'm sure they have captured a tremendous amount of learnings. The recent acquisition of One Medical is a sign that they are Still committed to to improving healthcare, and so those those are signs to me that, that we're we're still on the path. One medical is both a virtual and brick and mortar uh, functionality; hence, the you know the model of of teledriven care or uh, hybrid care. So last summer we saw our virtual claims. One of our one of our partners, Fairview Health, saw virtual care claims fall from five percent of all medical claims in May to four and a half percent in June last summer. But in May of this year, virtual visits visits rose 10%. We're seeing a a lot of acceptance for wider use cases for digital care delivery that goes far beyond seeing that doctor via video visit. And I would say, as an example, we have uh, two different products that are really um, holding their traction. One is uh, called Conversa, which is very much a disease management solution, a wellness solution, and it's remote patient monitoring in a way that goes beyond remote physiologic monitoring. And so if you put this tool in the hands of a virtualist primary care physician, They have, you know, we have the ability as a virtual primary care physician to interact with our patients in ways that go far beyond what's your blood pressure today, but how are you feeling? How how are you adhering to the dietary changes that we that we talked about in a way that is extremely efficient, both for the patient and for the physician, and actually improves health outcomes. So when we start to see new tools get inserted into what we have now really um, only experienced um, in large measure as a virtual visit then you have transformed the healthcare model in a way that will uh, deliver better quality at a reduced cost and and get people to goal in a much more efficient fashion. You know, it doesn't, for years, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has said, the office visit is a dinosaur. And so many times we've not been able to actually realize that the office visit is just a, a touch base. And it's not even a sufficient touch base when you're managing a chronic condition. It's something that really requires a lot more touch points. And those touch points can often be digitized and in a way that uh, helps support health behavior change. We've learned a lot from marketing scholars as to how to support health behavior change uh, using nudges and things of that nature. And we need to bring all that learning to bear in, in how we get to a better a set of health outcomes. So we're very optimistic about the future of digital care delivery, and, and many of these experiences can be automated in the spaces between the visits and, and customized to an individual patient's needs.
2: Well Dr. Nelson I share your optimism in digital care delivery and I appreciate your insights in particular because you're a primary care physician and you know firsthand the challenges and the relegated status and the morale that's the issues that are happening because of this transactional fee for service system that is really disempowering primary care and you know creating inferior outcomes in a suboptimal model And I'm really excited about this opportunity you have with Amwell to empower a modern, innovative digital healthcare experience in the primary care setting. Uh, You know, I think about virtual primary care and how it could offer a digital equivalent to visiting a physician in a primary care practice, um, delivering a concierge-like experience to patients, you know, a virtual solution in primary care can facilitate an even stronger relationship, if done correctly, with the primary care provider And it could dramatically improve care management and virtual primary care could, in fact, be that next frontier and bringing value based care to the country by offering a consumer centric solution to the marketplace that does make primary care more responsive and more effective. And when we use digital solutions or even video visits to increase those touch points in primary care, we can get better disease control at a higher level of Efficiency for providers and clinicians, but it's also more efficient for patients, and it provides those access points that may otherwise be difficult for certain people in underserved communities who have trouble getting to the doctor. Can you speak a little bit about how a virtual primary care solution, which is hybrid in nature, can have tremendous potential to leverage technology to get better health outcomes?
1: So I'll start with a, a couple. Of, uh, first off, a couple of statistics. So we know that people in rural communities have problems with accessing healthcare, both from a primary care perspective and a specialty perspective. And as a primary care physician myself, and I've been involved in my national academy, the Academy of Family, American Academy of Family Physicians, and I've heard firsthand from some of my colleagues in rural communities that they can't recruit. Uh, that they are having trouble getting anyone to to come into those communities to replace them, and they're they're aging and um, looking at retirement. So that's a it's a very dismal outlook for rural communities. But the same could be said for some of the urban communities. So we know that we have you know from the south side of Chicago to the north side of Chicago, it can take you two hours to get to that super sub specialist that you might need for your condition using technology solves many of those problems. It, it can't solve 100% of those problems, but it can solve many problems. And just as an example, I will call out a particular case that we saw within our virtual primary care program. So we had a person that was a man that was uh, suffering from COPD, long history of smoking, uh, lived in a rural community and found that his health plan offered a virtual primary care visits. So he was having an increasingly productive cough, he called in and was able to get uh, connected within a day with a primary care physician, which is an unheard of, frankly, in primary care practice as a new patient, and uh, went over the, the medications he was using. And, and the visibility to his home life was also very useful, being able to see that it wasn't as, as uh, tidy, probably a lot of dust that was contributing to his, to his issues, uh, some pets in the house, uh, all of those things were, were things that the physician could discuss with him, but also found that his medication use was uh, really off track. So um, I'll call him Gerald. And he, he found that, uh, the, the doctor found that he was using a steroid inhaler at twice the maximum dose, trying to get his cough to get better, that he was also relying on his nebulizer every four hours, and that the overuse of those medications was causing heart palpitations. So the physician used some tools. So we have uh, some peripherals that we can use and used a a pulse oximeter in in, uh, the examination and could also tell from his cough that there was some wheezing involved. The physician was able to prescribe Gerald medications that would actually better target his breathing, help prevent pneumonia by by, uh, providing him with some mucus thinning agents and uh, also change the type of medications he was using in his inhaler to be able to decrease the impact on his heart. You know, within a week, those symptoms were, were dramatically improved and an easy uh, follow-up visit was be, was able to, to be achieved. So that's just one example of a, a case uh, in which a patient, you know, really didn't have good access to primary care in their community, but um, was able to, to use this, this solution that their employer provided that met his need. The other thing I'll just call out about Chronic conditions in general and how we have so much trouble maintaining control or even getting to control, you know, in many cases, I've I've learned a useful construct recently that uh, is it it helps us distinguish between what we might call a technical problem versus a complex adaptive problem. And in many cases, if you think about traditional primary care and an interaction with the patient and I can speak to this. I saw patients as recently as four years ago myself. So I spent more than you know, 25 years in, in practice. We're rushed. We have 15 minute visits. We have a patient that comes to us with a chronic condition. We provide a treatment plan that would incorporate medications, lifestyle changes, some other uh, advice and education. And then we say, go on your way and I'll see you back in three months and hopefully it'll all be going great. And then when they come back, and they haven't been able to achieve all the components of the treatment plan, you know, we call them non-compliant. And that that is not an indictment of the physician in that setting. It's an indictment of how the healthcare system is not set up to deal with a complex adaptive problem, because what we've done is provide a technical solution. And I think that that construct is, you know, the technical solution being this simple treatment plan, when in fact what he really needed was maybe some, Uh, health coaching. He may have needed some care management. He may have needed a pharmacy pharmacist to help him with any medication side effects and and dose titration. Uh, A social worker to make sure that any barriers were removed to being able to adhere to the treatment plan. You know, if he's been prescribed some exercise, where is he going to do that in a safe place in, in his inner city neighborhood as an example? So all of those things just can't be done in a traditional primary care practice. Frankly, the fee-for-service model is part of the problem, as you all call out well, because many of those services are not uniquely reimbursable. But in a value-based model, you don't have to worry about that. You're really worried about delivering health. And all of those things are very much positioned to deliver health. And yet there are logistical challenges. And so in my own experience, you know, when I first started the work 11, 12 years ago at Advocate Aurora, building out an ambulatory care management program, we had to limit, you know, who got a care manager, what what practices got a care manager, because it's an expensive resource, and we had to limit the amount of travel between the practices for these care managers. And so if you didn't have enough lives uh, to justify an in-person care manager, you kind of had this um telephonic relationship with that person that you may you know kind of out of sight out of mind kind of problem that that you would run into there in a virtual setting, uh, anyone can have access to these services. Again, the value-based contracting very much supports that, but it, it's, it's you know, removed a lot of the logistical challenges of bringing all of these, uh, these different services to bear uh, in, in truly helping a patient adhere to a treatment plan in a, in a patient-centered way, very much uniquely customized for them. And that's the aspiration that we have for uh, virtual primary care.
0: Dr. Nelson, I love that explanation. And and the story of Gerald is a perfect example of avoiding an emergency room visit that was unnecessary. When you think of the healthcare system spending $32 billion annually on avoidable emergency room visits that could have been treated by primary physicians, it's easy to recognize that virtual primary care is an important key to implementing that, as you describe patient-centric, physician-aligned care management model. And this type of care model can be effective in reducing avoidable emergency department visits for patients with chronic conditions, especially, you know, these patients account for a significant number of potentially preventable ED visits. It's been estimated that ED visits for people with at least one chronic condition contribute to nearly 60% of all annual visits. And this It's such a tragic statistic as it shows there are well over 4 million ED visits each year that are potentially preventable. It suggests that these patients need that access to higher quality primary care. I'd love to hear your perspective on how telehealth can help address this challenge. You know, when you... How can health systems and advanced primary care practices leverage telehealth capabilities to create ED diversion programs to better engage patients and lower unnecessary emergency visits? And is this an opportunity to avoid inappropriate hospital admissions and save thousands of dollars in unnecessary medical spend per patient?
1: Absolutely. So in a setting where you've got a virtual primary care physician, you have established a model of care that now a patient is more likely to turn to at any time. And so we have urgent care as well. And it might be your virtual primary care that's available to you because we do have very short wait times to be able to get into the primary care on the virtual platform. But you also have the wraparound service of the 24-7-365 virtual urgent care. That in itself has been shown to significantly decrease emergency room visits at least 20% in many cases. And when you ask a patient, you know, what would you have done if you had uh, not had access to this service, then they would, you know, they oftentimes would say, and they oftentimes do say, I would have gone to the emergency room. And so that's one thing. And when I say, you know, at least a 20%, that's, that's just in a population where not everybody's even adopting the virtual care. We do find that the urgent care solution, about 86% of the time can take care of the problem in the video visits, that only 8% of the time do people need to be referred to acute care uh, settings or even just in-person primary care settings. It's, it's not even often the emergency room that they need to go to. A lot of the source for that is, is challenges with navigating the healthcare system, and people need more support with that. And so we do have a virtual, an automated emergency department follow-up program uh, with our Conversa product. And one example is uh, one of our health system partners, Spectrum Health, used the automated emergency department follow-up program, and it allows them, so if you've gone to the emergency department, first off, you can be put into a virtual room to where you actually speak with a virtual, virtual primary care. If, if you've, once you've been triaged, you can speak with a virtual primary care physician and, and your, your, your condition can oftentimes be managed that way. Uh, and then you can actually have the experience that you might go virtual first next time because you've already had this great experience. But if, a, if an emergency room visit is actually needed and a patient goes home after that visit, that virtual companion can perform frequent, automated, chat-based Check-ins and, and it's done in a very empathic way to help the care team work with the patient, catch problems earlier, intervene sooner. I had an experience with this myself with a different product, but similar similar concept in my work with uh, Advocate Aurora, in which we, during the pandemic, when so many patients, when capacity was really constrained, and we had to make hard decisions about who warranted a hospital bed and who who we needed to manage at home, we had a, a virtual chat in which our care managers were. In touch with folks that had gone home and could immediately take action to to return them to the acute setting if need be. And, And it had a tremendous impact both on being able to manage the capacity constraints and manage patients safely at home, but also help people feel like they had someone watching out for them. I mean, the kinds of comments that we got from patients from this experience were not nothing less than purely heartwarming. Um, you know, they're isolating. Many of them are isolated to begin with, but then they're also isolating because they want to protect their family. And the comments were like things like, you know, I didn't feel so all alone. That kind of support is just, it, it's wide reaching. It goes beyond the physical and into the emotional and, and mental health of, of the people that we're serving by being able to have at ready hand, the ability to reach out and, and have a, a communication go to a healthcare provider that can take action for you. So with Spectrum Health example in particular, they used the audio, uh, automated ED follow-up visit uh, in that fashion. And then more than 20,000 patients participated in the first year. They found that unplanned admissions, emergency department visits, other acute care episodes for those people that used it were uh, about 5% lower. And the control group, and that resulted in about a million dollars worth of annual savings. So just a tremendous amount of, of, of potential there and, and really just scratching the surface with those 20,000 patients. There's so many more that could benefit with so much more impact. And the care team and patient satisfaction was very high. 90% of patients said that the chat was helpful in their care. So it's it's just really a win-win for a burned-out healthcare workforce, patients that aren't getting what they what they really need from the traditional healthcare system.
2: Well, it seems like, it. you know, it's a win-win in the purest sense. I mean, you have a way to improve outcomes with patients that, that need care, avoid the ED, you have a better experience, and then providers um, have a more efficient workflow, and that contributes to the quality of life. And then you just think about the the outsized impact and the potential to really make a difference. Um, Daniel mentioned earlier, and In his question about the percent of ED visits that are based on chronic conditions that are under managed in the primary care setting, and it's just such a pervasive problem. I mean, right now, if you look at the senior population, you have two out of three Medicare beneficiaries with two or more chronic conditions, and one in three patients are living with four or more chronic conditions, and chronic diseases are the leading cause of death and disability in the U.S., accounting for seven and and ten deaths. Many patients that were hospitalized or killed by COVID-19 infection had chronic conditions related to obesity. They had COPD, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. Even before the pandemic, the U.S. spent $214 billion on medical interventions for preventable complications from events such as heart attacks and strokes, and we lost $138 billion in worker productivity. And the research is demonstrated time and time again that care management reduces total cost of care for chronic disease patients and improves their overall health. But despite the impressive research and the results, patients still to this day continue to receive care management services that remain the exception, not the rule. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Nelson, I mean, why is it The traditional approach to managing chronic disease is so ineffective, and how can virtual visits and chronic care management programs that combine telemedicine and wearables allow for better disease control and fewer complications at a lower cost?
1: Yeah, you've really nailed it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a huge cost uh, generator in our, and it's it's detracting from our ability to invest in many other health-producing things like education, right? So if we're spending so much on healthcare and chronic disease is a major contributor to that, it's a it's an opportunity cost into other areas of our of our society that could actually produce more health. So as I mentioned, we have approached chronic disease as a technical problem and provided technical solutions, and just to define that for a moment, a technical solution is one that can be solved by an expert. And if that were the case, that scenario where a primary care doctor or even a specialist who provides a treatment plan to a patient, that's a technical solution. And if if it was solvable in that fashion, it would have happened by now. Instead, we really need to address the complexity of managing chronic conditions and and the various tools at our disposal to be able to do that. So you mentioned care management. The term care management, um, I think my traditional model of that is really a person, usually a nurse, sometimes a social, social worker, who's engaging with a patient to help understand, um, have, have productive patient activating conversations with them, help them problem solve, to be able to adhere to a treatment plan. Uh, engage in better lifestyle behaviors, understand the nature of their chronic con- their chronic condition and its triggers. As you can imagine, it's a very expensive resource. So in a fee-for-service model, care management is almost never a, f- a possibility. Uh, it's, not un- it's not uniquely reimbursable except for by some recent Medicare codes, but a lot of uh, traditional physician practice They can do the work that's consistent with being able to bill for those codes, but it's not a slam dunk that care management actually produces a result. There's a lot of literature out there that shows the variability of care management outcomes. And so it's a very special skill that that needs to be brought to bear in order to get the outcomes that we need. In a value-based arrangement, uh, we have the ability to to use care management for its best and make sure that it's adherent to, to the best principles uh, that we know produce results. But I would go beyond that because it's, it's a very expensive resource and it doesn't take advantage in and of itself of all that we know about health behavior change. And so these tools like our Conversa uh, product and other digital therapeutics that are out there have the ability to walk with a patient throughout their day and help them track their, their progress. So I'll give an example. Prisma Health, another one of our health system partners, uh, is using our Conversa Automated Care Program for chronic care management, uh, diabetes, heart failure, COPD, and asthma, also women's health and pediatrics, as well as wellness and obesity. And the experience that they, they have is that it allows them to hear more from patients, to collect that self-reported data on their condition and use that information to navigate them to the right avenue for care. And they've seen better adherence to the treatment plan, and it deepens the relationship between the patients and their care teams. You know, this very central relationship between the care team, one member of which is the physician and the patient, is, is really where the power needs to be highly leveraged. And, and I don't think that we're there at this point in time. But, but these kinds of tools have that impact. When you describe it, it may feel cold and impersonal to think about a you know interactive text uh, conversation or even automation that's involved in that, AI that's involved in that, or even automated voice recognition. Those kinds of things may feel cold and impersonal, but it enables a more functional together with real human interactions between the patient and the care team. It's a more functional uh, relationship in which the old Ed Wagner chronic care model called out as really critical to getting better uh, chronic disease results. And that is the prepared proactive practice team and the uh, informed and activated patient. And that's what these tools are really designed to, to bridge. So there's a lot to be said for, for bringing a lot more diversity of tools to the chronic condition enterprise and, and all that we're trying to achieve with that, including you know better disease control, but just better life, just better life for our patients. Uh, it's no fun living with a chronic disease, but it can be, it, it can be manageable um, with the right tools. The other thing I'll call out that's a distinction between some of the tools I'm describing and the remote patient monitoring that is currently reimbursable. So, remote patient monitoring takes on two forms. One is physiologic monitoring and the other is real person monitoring, remote person monitoring, you might even call it. So physiologic monitoring has reimbursement codes associated with it in which uh, if you are monitoring a person's blood pressure remotely or their blood sugar, you know, there's a Medicare code for that now. Remote person monitoring is actually taking the entire uh, experience of a person living with a chronic condition and helping capture that in in a way that allows them to interact with their care team to create better health. Patients are more than their vital signs, but the reimbursement that's associated with remote physiologic monitoring seems to presume that it's all about the vital signs. So uh, there's just a lot to be said with capturing patient-reported outcomes in a way that moves the ball forward in managing chronic conditions.
0: Dr. Nelson, you paint a great picture of the potential of these virtual solutions. And as, as we think about the utility of telehealth becoming increasingly evident, you know, it's also become apparent that there are significant challenges with serving the needs of vulnerable populations. You know, telemedicine can do a lot to alleviate the relative misdistribution of providers and bring healthcare to rural areas of the country and areas that, are, that have fewer resources. And the ability of of virtual care to address inequities and access was readily demonstrated during the pandemic. And the smartphone is fairly ubiquitous and capable of video interactions, and it proved to be a lifeline for these underserved populations. Additionally, when the pandemic forced the closure of in-person clinics and offices, instituted virtual visits for behavioral health had a profound impact on addressing mental health provider shortages the benefits of telemedicine in addressing health inequities and provider shortages are readily apparent but i think we still have yet to see the full potential of telemedicine in healthcare can you describe the potential for virtual care in addressing health disparities and behavioral health care access challenges
1: you bet well the first Thing I would say is let's make sure that virtual healthcare doesn't contribute to disparities. So we do know that we have a broadband problem. That there are 14 million homes in urban settings that do not have broadband, and 75% of those are people of color. In rural communities, about 4 million homes do not have broadband access, and so that is you're right. The smartphone is ubiquitous, but we we still have broadband access issues. So there are policy changes that need to come to bear to help solve that, but. I would also say that we are recognizing it and making sure that we don't contribute to that in every way we can. We want this to be an an, an inequity solution that healthcare should be available to all, that it should not be a privilege to those few that, that have you know, the right ways of accessing it. So we're working with uh, other technology companies, for example, to, to turn televisions into telemedicine devices. So that's uh, that's something that I think is even more ubiquitous than the smartphone and can really help solve those, those access issues. And so that's one thing. But certainly on the topic of behavioral health, we know that uh, 50 million U.S. adults as of 2022 experience mental illness, and over 56% are not getting the right mental health treatment. I have never been in a community in my career or talked to folks, and I've talked to folks around the country, I've never experienced a community that had adequate access to mental health services. And yet, we have capacity within our programs. And so we have over 100 mental health providers, both therapists as well as psychiatrists, that are helping to provide access in a very short window of time. And so very, uh, you know, many times if you're looking to get into a brick and mortar provider, whether it's a therapist or or a psychiatrist, yeah, it's a it's a six to eight or more longer wait. Uh, we can get people within a few days into our behavioral health providers, and this is this is one that has really maintained its its volume of virtual health over time. I think this is this is the new format for uh, behavioral health is uh, on a virtual platform to great to a great degree. We found that we are approaching this really in a full continuum of fashion that is enabled by virtual care in a way that, that you know is solving a lot of health system problems. So as an example, we have our psychiatry group that will help manage patients in the emergency department. So people that come to the emergency room with a, either an exacerbation of a chronic condition or an exacerbation of their psychiatric condition, oftentimes are boarding in the emergency room for days. If they need a psychiatric admission, uh, it's it's a long time before by the time they get to the emergency room before they can actually be placed in a bed far too often. As you can imagine, the emergency room is the worst place in the world. For folks with uh, for, with these psychiatric conditions, it only exacerbates the problem. And uh, you might be waiting, you know, you may not even have a psychiatrist that can see them while they're there. With our virtual uh, solution, we we can get psychiatrists there uh, helping to manage that patient right away and get them starting on, started on treatment for their psychiatric condition. And in many cases, that treatment goes so well that they wind up not even needing that psychiatric bed in the first place. So really getting people back into their homes, back into uh, care in their communities in conjunction with the, with the telemedicine solution is enabled through that, that approach. We also know that the therapy solution is, is something that, uh, again, creates better access for people and uh, there's a lot of comfort in knowing that, you know, you can speak to someone over, over your computer on both sides. So uh, in, in many brick and mortar settings, therapists that might be in their office, or they work on a very lean staff. They might be alone with the patient and that patient might be experiencing some significant, you know, concerns that might even be creating safety concerns for that provider. That problem goes away as it, you know, in a telemedicine environment. And I've talked to therapists that felt that, The telemedicine solution enabled them to to continue to do the work that they love, whereas previously they might have felt they had to choose between family and work. So it's it's really helped to uh, preserve the workforce for therapists. It's so desperately needed uh, for our communities. As I mentioned with our behavioral health solution, we have a full continuum solution. So I talked about therapy, psychiatry, but we also have a digital solution called Silver Cloud. And Silver Cloud is a a text based interactive cognitive behavioral therapy solution that um, many It's been shown many uh, people are actually even more readily ready to engage in that kind of a resolution to their health, mental health concerns versus talking with a therapist. It seems to remove some barriers just by providing it in the digital format. From there, we can also escalate care from that interactive digital platform to a therapist, to a psychiatrist. So we have the whole continuum covered there.
2: Dr. Nelson, I really appreciate your insights on how we can leverage telehealth to improve behavioral health outcomes in populations. And we've also spent a great amount of time today talking about the importance of virtual care in a primary care setting, you know, given that primary care is so central to a high-functioning healthcare system. And I wanted to get a little bit more into how we can use these solutions also for specialty care optimization. Fully achieving whole person care is going to require the additional depth and scope of services offered by specialty care, of course, and the effective coordination of primary and specialty care providers has so much opportunity right now to, to get approved upon. And between 2000 and 2019, researchers found that the portion of beneficiaries seeing five or more Specialty physicians increased from 18 to 30 percent and the mean annual number of specialist visits increased by 20 percent. Moreover, they found that the average number of physicians with which a primary care provider needs to coordinate increased from 52 to 95 physicians from 2000 to 2019, which is an 83 percent increase. A lot of numbers there, of course, but, you know, we we have to think about how when treating these patients who require these specialty referrals. I'm thinking about the primary care physicians in this change. and you know, a lot of them have a common complaint that you know ninety five percent of the expertise that that's needed to accurately diagnose and treat is there already in managing these patients. And there's only that five percent maybe that requires specialty involvement. But sometimes they're, they, they want to seek assurances that their diagnosis or plans appropriate, and without that missing five percent, there are only options to make a referral for an in person specialty consultation, and that leads to treatment delays and higher costs. And I'm just thinking, if thirty to forty percent of these in person specialist visits were replaced by telehealth consults, you know, we could save tens of billions of dollars potentially. Can you describe how telehealth presents an opportunity? to make specialty care more responsive to patient needs with improved cost effectiveness and clinical efficiency?
1: So absolutely true. We have a shortage of specialists or they're poorly distributed. I would say many, many times, a lot of it's a matter of distribution in which certain communities are underserved by certain specialties, but there are certain specialties that are grossly under-resourced. We just don't have enough of, of certain types of specialties. Rheumatology would be one. I think neurology would be another. And when you look at these specialties, about 50% of the physicians are burned out. So that, you can just imagine that further detract, detracting from the capacity um, that we have. It's really, uh, we've seen it in, uh, in our health system partners to where uh, a person can be in the emergency room and need a specialty consult uh, from, a, say, a cardiologist. They've got a doctor there at the bedside that can give them all the information and can do a full exam. And that cardiologist can be made more efficient by being able to telemedicine into the emergency room uh, and provide all the, the treatment recommendations that are needed. That's just one example. And what it does then is it, it, it has a ne- it has a positive impact on the physician burnout because they're not now running from the floors to the emergency room or to a different hospital. They're actually able to stay where they are and save the time that would have otherwise been spent traveling between those places in a very rushed and hurried manner, probably also answering phone calls on en route and and all of the chaos that comes with that. So uh, certainly being able to provide specialty access to care has a couple different ways it, it contributes to improving uh, health outcomes. First off, by providing access uh, to where it otherwise would not have existed. Uh, second off, decreasing the, the, the risk of burnout. And um, I would also say in a primary care setting, many times primary care doctors, when they live in a, in a setting where there's limited access to specialty care, and I would say, that's not just in a rural setting. If you're a primary care doctor that treats a largely Medicaid patient population in Chicago, while you have the best and the brightest within academia, it's it's oftentimes quite a way to be able to get a Medicaid patient in, in to see a specialist. So uh, those kinds of things are all you know contributing to specialist access. So PCPs can be pushed to the edge of their comfort zone in terms of managing a condition that should perhaps be managed by a specialist or at least consulted, having a special specialist consulted. Many times what happens today is that uh, in, in a setting where there is access, the primary care physician will refer to a specialist and the specialist might assume the care of that condition for on the behalf of the primary care, when in fact a more efficient use of the resources for them to provide recommendations, a treatment plan that can then be executed on and monitored by the primary care physician. So. We can improve specialist access with that kind of a model, both in brick and mortar and in telemedicine. But I would contend that it's actually much more likely to happen in a telemedicine scenario than it is in brick and mortar. And so that's a change that uh, I think can have wide-reaching impact on overall specialist availability and uh, help primary care physicians function to the best of their ability with, within their own practices. Just as another example, we, we uh, work with Penn State Health. And they launched a hybrid cardiac rehab program, which they found better fit patient needs. So cardiac rehab is something that is grossly underutilized in primary and in care. So people that have had a cardiac event should go to cardiac rehab. But many times, you know, it's probably less than 10% that actually complete cardiac rehab. With a hybrid program at Penn State, they were able to get 85% of patients continuing their in-home exercise program six months out from completing the program. So that ability to uh, engage with patients both in person and in a hybrid manner was really a game changer in in terms of people being able to uh, complete this really vital type of care uh, of cardiac rehab that will improve their their quality of life over the long term.
0: Dr. Nelson, I'm so excited by the, the advances that you're sharing in these awesome stories. And and I think about uh, the change that is upon us. And, and you mentioned earlier in our conversation something about health policy briefly and how it could drive telehealth adoption in the future or limit it. And, you know, we think about expanded access to telehealth services and these rapid advancements in technology. A lot of that was spurred by the pandemic. You know, it resulted in telehealth becoming one of the very few but positive developments out of the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, we saw millions of patients have access to quality health care, lower health care costs and improved health outcomes. And and earlier this summer, in a rare and kind of overwhelming demonstration of bipartisan agreement, H.R. 4040, or the Advancing Telehealth Beyond COVID-19 Act, was passed in the U.S. House with a final vote tally of 416 to 12. The onus is now on the U.S. Senate to act, and soon, This legislation would extend vital telehealth flexibilities enacted during the pandemic, making expanded telehealth available through 2024. Public opinion is in favor of the legislation with 78% of surveyed US voters, including broad majorities of Republicans, independents and Democrats, supporting the permanent protection of telehealth access. In your opinion, will this legislation bring us closer to permanently expanding telehealth services and allowing Americans to continue to access critical health care from the comfort of their home?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think, can't put the genie back in the bottle. And this is a way to make sure that 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 genie has a more uh, prolonged time frame within which to work its magic. We have not fully harvested all the learnings from the pandemic at this point. And uh, by getting out of the urgency of the pandemic and being able to implement telehealth in a, the context of a, of a regular you know healthcare experience, we we can uh, enhance our learning and and get it more fully hardwired into the care model. I will also say though that you know legislation is necessary but not sufficient. We need tremendous leadership in this area. As a healthcare leader myself, it's hard to keep up the good fight. And our, our physicians have been burned by technology advances in the past. So we've got you know the example of the electronic health record, which has has degraded the experience of our of our clinicians in practice in ways that uh, are contributing, have contributed very significantly to the burnout problem that we have. So those physicians and and other members of the care team have been burned. We've got to listen really hard at this time to make sure that a tele-driven care model achieves everything that it can achieve, both for the health outcomes of the people that we serve, but also to decrease the burnout in our healthcare teams. And that's going to take a lot of listening and partnership with those healthcare teams. It's hard to do that. Uh, in the context of, you know, a very busy practice, but here again, it, it's going to take a lot of uh, folks working together that are locked, ar- locking arms in order to be able to see this, the potential of teledriven models of care uh, fully realized. Uh, legislation delaying the, the rollback of the waivers is, you know, is a valuable step forward. Uh, we do need to make them permanent. Patients very much want to maintain this uh, virtual model of care. When when patients and physicians are surveyed on their opinions about this, patients overwhelmingly have a higher uh, positive response than uh, than physicians do in terms of uh, embracing a tele uh, telemedicine model of care. You know, when I hear from physicians about why that is, I think. There's the the desire to return to what is familiar, even if it isn't better. Uh, and some of it is, is based in fear. So we have a lot of cognitive bias that's based in fear, uh, but we also have the experience of our providers that we've burned them with, with, the, with the last technical revolution in care. And so uh, working together with legislators and helping the patient's voice actually inform how we use telemedicine in the future and helping our physician colleagues understand what's in it for them to, to engage uh, in, in a better teledriven model of care is, is going to be a lot of work. And that's going to take years, but the faster we can do it, I think the better off all of us will be.
2: Well, Carrie, I hear you saying tele-driven models of care are the future and we're going to need partnerships. And I think that is so true, especially if we look at some of the futurism trends that are projected for the uh, evolving healthcare industry, getting into asset light models. Uh, For example, you know, as care becomes more virtualized and procedures are going to shift more and more into the ambulatory setting, you know, the the hospital of the future is definitely going to be more asset light. And in that model, you know, they're going to be providing higher levels of emergency medical and surgical care with capacity weighted towards more intensive patient management. And the acute care facility is going to be supported by this network of connected and expanded ambulatory resources enabled by remote patient monitoring, uh, virtual care, telemedicine. And and then we had to think about this trend towards hospital-at-home models where patients are going to receive acute-level care in their homes rather than in a hospital. I mean, that's certainly going to be a big part of the future. And this new model is going to require – Health systems to find digital care partners. However, you know I was looking at a, a survey recently and uh, of health systems, and 82% of them. Reported that they viewed telehealth companies like Amwell or Teladoc as competitors. <laughs> so I find that I found that interesting, and that this is second only to the percentage of surveyed health systems that named other health systems as competitors. So I wanted to ask you in this move towards the a driven future in healthcare and asset like care delivery, and all of these other trends that are on the horizon. What is the opportunity for traditional healthcare systems? to partner with virtual care enablers to improve care delivery. And if you were an incumbent health system leader, and I I know you know that role well, you know, how would you be thinking about the competitive landscape where you see many early stage non-conventional healthcare companies uh, coming in and disrupting the
1: marketplace? Yeah. Well, you really, well, first off, I love the vision that you paint of the future with uh, Asset Light Hospitals and, and and this really important partnership and what's possible in the future. I hear your point completely that it's a change, you know, tele, telehealth uh, companies uh, have entered and really, I think, anchored themselves in the landscape of, the, of healthcare. And I will tell you that AMWOL's position is not to compete with the folks that we work with. So in a scenario when we're working with a payer, we will provide uh, urgent care, and we, which oftentimes offloads emergency rooms, and many emergency rooms are quite burdened in my experience. And uh, the other aspect is uh, virtual primary care. So the virtual primary care solution, when we're working with a payer, is focused on folks that have chosen not to go and not, and not to choose a primary care physician, recognizing that there's a significant trend in this direction. So you know we we hear that you know forty percent of millennials or, or some some number don't don't really see the value in a primary care physician. But we also know from the work of people like Barbara Starfield that primary care, when it's fully realized and um, resourced in a community, has a significant decrease on cost and an improvement in quality. And so if we if this trend continues and uh, the value of primary care continues to be to degrade in the in the minds of of the people that we're serving. But we're we're really at risk of losing something important. And so, our target for working with health plans and and a and a virtual primary care setting is to to work with those that have not engage with primary care, some of those folks will have very basic uh, wellness needs. Others are much more complex and probably should be in a brick and mortar setting, and we will refer them accordingly. So uh, so that's one, one way of responding uh, to that. The other thing is that we, we work with our, our health system colleagues and practices, and we have provided uh, through our Converge platform a very robust integrated telemedicine solution that, again, goes beyond video visits that their physicians can work on. So uh, we work with um, with those health system partners to get uh, workflows uh, in order and uh, and, uh, enable the adoption of that platform so that their physicians can provide the care. However, we know the availability is not 24-7-365. It's rare that a health system is able to invest in 24-7-365 availability of clinicians, and we can help to supplement their care um, with that 24-7-365 availability with our urgent care clinicians. So, Many health systems are in value-based contracts, and uh, they see the importance of avoiding emergency department use uh, for that reason. And, and even when that's not the case, emergency rooms are largely overburdened and really need to be focused on caring for people that need to be there because their, their conditions are, are that acute. Getting to some of your other, your other points about asset light, uh, hospitals, we, we definitely have technology partners that we collaborate with that are focused on really building off the model of what we've seen with EICU. And uh, as an example, when I was at um, Advocate Aurora, we used our EICU, uh, we started to use it in ways beyond just helping to manage the patients in the ICU. We did a pilot program in which our EICU was enabled to follow up with sepsis alerts. We know that clinicians working at the bedside and taking care of the totality of the needs of a patient are over-alerted. And sepsis alerts just contribute to that. And we found that that we weren't getting the traction we needed in in order to uh, get the response on on the sepsis alerts. And and by using the, the EICU, in a way that we were responding to the sepsis alerts, we could distinguish who really needed to have their care escalated to a higher level of focus because they might be having sepsis or, or those that were you know, not necessarily having sepsis, but many times we're having another uh, source of deterioration in their care. So being able to build off the use of an EICU sort of perspective in a way that brings expertise throughout the house and into ambulatory settings uh, the potential is, is, is just hasn't hardly even been tapped. Uh, and, and that's going to take a lot of investment. Uh, and that's not something that health systems have a tremendous amount of resources to be able to do. So we have to be very uh, careful and make sure that the data uh, demonstrates the value of those investments. Uh, but we are starting to realize that, um, no doubt. And you're right, you know, the the health system of the future really should be using that expensive facility for the people that are at the highest acuity of needs. I I mean, I'm old enough to remember that. I remember my grandmother getting admitted for tests uh, back in the day. Um, You know, they didn't have a a diagnosis or and she wasn't even really acutely in need of uh, acute care as we would see it today but it was just easier to admit her to the hospital so she could have a series of tests. That's, you know, so far gone. And I think we're going to see something much more similar in the future where we're maybe we're 50% away from that model of care and what the future model of care and and what the the real work of a hospital will be. Um, but it's, it's probably um, an equally uh, sufficient transition from what I described with my grandmother to now as to what we're going to get from now to the future. And hospital at home, there's a lot of, uh, technology that's enabling hospital at home. We still got a lot to learn about that. Uh, but certainly people that come to the emergency room, we know that it, emergency room physicians are in a tough position. They've got to make a quick decision on whether a patient needs to be in the hospital or sent home. And, and, and there's, you know, in Illinois in particular, we have a very litigious environment. And many times that is a factor. It's taken into consideration when, when making a decision to admit a person. So, um, And then an emergency room physician doesn't actually have the time to orchestrate a treatment plan that would enable a person not to be admitted to the hospital. We know that there are admissions that come into the hospital that could be better treated at home, especially with the right care team and the technology that supports them. And, and many of those conditions are people that are nowhere near as sick as those folks that you could say really warrant a hospital admission. They're being admitted for social reasons, or they're being admitted because there's a you know it's they're they're on the bubble, if you will. Um, they could go either way, but there's a discomfort, and it feels safer to admit them to the hospital. And then I would go on to say that the hospital is not a very safe place. We know that people that get admitted to the hospital have uh, hospital acquired conditions and infections that get, that can really um, have a, a far reaching impact on on their health. And uh, by keeping people out of the hospital, everyone is, is better served. So in, in order to achieve that, we've got to continue to double down on our experience with using a combination of care teams and telehealth to be able to uh, put people at the right level of care, uh, whether it's a hospital ambulatory or more subacute care in their homes or another type of facility.
0: Dr. Nelson, you've painted a, a great future. And I want to think about that future a little bit further and, and talk with you about the ideal model for the, for the future of U.S. medicine It's one that would replace or at least significantly augment today's fragmented fee-for-service approach, and it's driven by telehealth. Imagine this integrated prepaid tech-enabled system in which teams of primary and specialty physicians are working together, as you described, to deliver this exceptional care. All the systems physicians have the same financial incentives to keep people healthy. And they aim to provide convenient, expanded access via telemedicine. They're really rewarded on the basis of the quality of care delivered to defined patient populations and the cost savings achieved for those populations. I'd like to ask, what are your parting thoughts on on how value-based care will serve as a catalyst to drive that digital transformation for the future of healthcare delivery in our country? And finally, what inspiration can you share with our listeners who are agents in transforming our system?
1: So again, the beauty of value-based care is that not every service you provide needs to be uniquely reimbursable and that you can provide services based on the health they produce versus whether or not you're gonna get paid to provide that service. And so it's just mind blowing how, how much that concept opens up the potential for new models of care. I mean, community health workers, you know, we've talked a lot about technology for sure having a pharmacist to medication dose titration actually gets people to go much more quickly. And so bringing a whole team of uh, professionals to bear uh, is much more better enabled through a technology platform and also helps free up our primary care physicians to do what they do best. And I would contend that what primary care physicians do best is work on a relationship with a patient, Make complex medical diagnoses and develop a treatment plan. We can bring many others to the table to help execute on all of uh, on that treatment plan and preserve and enhance the, the relationship between uh, a patient and their care team and primary care physician in a way that that isn't currently feasible. The thing I would say about you know parting words is that the pandemic has opened up the potential for radical change like nothing I've seen in my career. And we've been iterating around change for a very long time. It's time for a, a hard right turn from the road that we've been traveling on. And we seem to insist upon continuing to travel on that road, uh, as you see from some of the return to more brick and mortar uh, visits versus uh, versus the the telemedicine visits that have served us so well and that patients very much want. So our moment is now uh, to take that hard right turn. And if it's the road is well lit. And in fact, I will refer to a quote from a a world health leader from Kenya who said that we have the Ferrari care model for healthcare. What we don't have is the road. So we got the Ferrari, let's find the road to be able to get more of a hybrid care model, fully implemented, Um, and and, and do the change management that's needed to be able to get to better health outcomes at a lower cost with a less burnt out workforce. We have to be able to achieve that last goal through the use of of these uh, new care models. It has to be able to deliver on the reduction in burnout among our clinicians, or we will never get to a better care model.
2: Amen to that. Carrie, thank you so much for providing your insights this week. I'm really excited about this important opportunity we have in our nation's healthcare system to transform it through a tele-driven health model. So excited about your new role at Amwell, and uh, we appreciate your time today and joining us on the race to value.
1: Thank you so much, Dan and Eric. It was wonderful to be with you. I am big champion of the work that you're doing with this podcast and that you've done in all the years leading up to it. And I will also tell you, I love your, your music, um, <laughs> your intro music. If nothing else, I think it's, yeah, it's really well done. It's nice.